Support for LAist comes from FX, presenting Fargo, from creator Noah Hawley. This anthology series follows as a Midwestern housewife attempts to evade her past. Starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Lee. Episodes at fxnetworks.com FYC. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a health resort 45 minutes outside of San Diego. Summer packages include fitness classes, hiking, live music, mindfulness, and culinary adventures with fresh fruits and veggies. RanchoLaPuerta.com. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us today. Hope your day's off to a good start. A little bit later this hour, we'll take a look at the population of mountain lions in California. Sightings, of course, are rare in urban Los Angeles, and when we do find a mountain lion, we tend to adopt it. <laughs> but uh, in other parts of the state, they're, they're much more common. And we'll talk about what we see in the way of population and concerns about the trends with the mountain lion population. Also later this hour, it's a chance to share the haircut horror story that you perhaps are telling years later. The uh, visit to the salon or the barbershop that went woefully awry and uh, your hair grew out, thankfully, but uh, at least for a time left you an embarrassing circumstance. That's coming up later. But we begin with what for me is a, a really big decision, and I'm curious to hear if this is at all resonant with you. Yesterday, I got an email from the Los Angeles Times saying that my home delivery of my printed edition of the newspaper will be uh, undergoing a price increase, and it'll now be nearly $1,000 a year for me to have home delivery of the printed Los Angeles Times. I'm someone who has been reading the Times thoroughly every day since I was 13 years old. Before that, there were parts of the paper that I read even younger. This has been a part of my life for more than 50 years, and to cease home delivery is highly symbolic for me. Now, when I when I read the printed edition of the paper, almost always it's a story that I've read online, uh, because that's really where I do most of my reading of the Times. It's where I read the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. I have digital subscriptions to all of those publications. But I've kept home delivery of the Los Angeles Times seven days a week, despite its cost, and despite having already read those stories online for the most part, because it's a way for me to financially support the newspaper, which is extremely important to me, that the L.A. Times survives. And secondly, it, it's something that is a personal tradition for me. It's meaningful to wake up, to go out, and to have that printed newspaper in the driveway at my house. But as I'm sure you've seen in your neighborhood, it's a rare sighting now to see a newspaper actually in a driveway. Uh, the neighborhood I live in, I walk around and, and you know, maybe Every 20, 25, every 30 houses, I'll see an L.A. Times or a New York Times or a journal in the driveway. But it's very, very 
rare to see it compared to years past where almost everybody got home delivery of a newspaper in Southern California. Even working-class neighborhoods, going back to my childhood, often got the evening delivery of the L.A. Herald-Examiner in which you know, kids would have the bag on the on the uh, handlebars of their bicycle uh, full of folded-up Herald-Examiners or regional papers like the Daily Breeze in the South Bay uh, or the Santa Monica Evening Outlook that they would be uh, riding around and uh, throwing onto the porch of local homes. So I'd like to hear from you whether this is something you would all relate to. Now, I admit it, I, I work in the news business, so my feeling about newspapers is probably more intense than a typical AirTalk listeners will be, but uh, I'm not sure that's universal. My guess is that that many other listeners feel this kind of connection, and maybe you even subscribe to a print edition of the L.A. Times or another newspaper because in part of that symbolism of having the paper delivered. So I'd like to hear from you. First, if you're a former print edition subscriber who dropped it either because of cost or because it's no longer relevant because you've read all the material online, share with me when you hit that threshold. What was it that led you to cancel that home delivery? Secondly, if you're someone who continues to get a print edition, if you're like me and you, you're you still getting it, I haven't called to cancel yet. I'm intending to do so. I'll continue, of course, with the digital subscription. But if you're someone who is still getting the printed edition of the newspaper, I'd like to hear the reasons why you do so. It doesn't have to be the Times. It could be one of the uh, SoCal News Group newspapers that serve different regions of Southern California. It could be the New York Times, maybe the Sunday edition only of that, perhaps the Wall Street Journal Saturday weekend edition uh, newspaper that comes. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. I also wonder, as the price to have home delivery of the newspaper escalates, I I also used to get home delivery of a SoCal news group, local newspaper, and I I kept that uh, digital but canceled the print edition some time ago because their price kicked up even higher than the Los Angeles Times. And, And I just, I could no longer justify it when I can have a digital subscription to read it. But I like the tactile feeling of a newspaper. I I like holding it in my hands. I like washing my hands after I'm done with it to get the ink off my fingertips. It's all kind of part of, of how I digest news, even though it's not, from a practical matter, anywhere near the importance of the digital subscriptions that I have. 866-893-5722. Tim in West Hollywood, good to have you with us. So, Tim, uh, share with us first, do do you continue to get a print edition delivered, or did you give it up? I gave it up. I I started getting it seven days a week with the L.A. Times in college, and I kept it up until it got to about five or $600 a year. And, you know, I work in print media. I love getting the newspaper every day, but it just became cost prohibitive, especially because you can just get it online. So for me, you know, after after all these years of a newspaper in the driveway, when I cancel it, am I going to feel the sting of it? Did you feel the sting of it when it stopped? 
Yeah, and I do miss it every now and then. There is something about just being able to sit there with your coffee and unfold the newspaper. I, I will actually go and do the PDF and put it on my Kindle and, and try and read it like that. But yeah. I definitely do miss having the physical paper. All right, Tim, I thank you so much. I appreciate you sharing your experience. Let's talk with Peter in Hollywood. Peter, I understand you still get hard copies of two newspapers delivered? L.A. Times and the New York Times. And um, we do it for a couple different reasons. First of all, um, my son is 14, and as he sits in the morning and has breakfast before school, he'll flip through the pages of the newspapers, um, especially the L.A. Times. Uh, my wife and I do the New York Times a little bit more. Uh, the second thing is it's just a great, calm way to start the day. Um, you know, as we flip through the pages, you find stories that you had no idea that you need discoveries, which, which are great. Um, I also like reading the comics. Um, not going to lie. Uh, totally works for us. I love the comics. <laughs> you don't have to apologize yeah. for reading the comics. No, yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, you think newspaper, oh, you know, it's edification or, you know, expands your understanding of the world. Whatever. That's fun. It's also fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so that's us, yeah. I'm never going to stop getting the newspaper. I mean, so, Peter, you you just you'll budget for it regardless, because my sense is, even though I know that home delivery is profitable because they charge so much for it, my sense is they're trying to push people away from getting home delivery. So it, even as they keep raising the price to attempt to make it prohibitive for you, you'll still keep going. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a I think it's like a thousand dollars a year or something insane like that. Um, yeah. And, um, but the other reason also is just the larger idea of what do I do to support, um, journalism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I have a lot of friends who are newspaper people or were newspaper people, but then, you know, got retired out of the business. And, um, I saw firsthand, you know, the good that they could do. Yeah. Um, and that they still do maybe, uh, Oh, yeah. I'm with you, Peter, and that that was a big part of it, is I want to support the Los Angeles Times, even as, you know, they've cut staff, they, it's not as ambitious a paper as it was in terms of international coverage and the like. Like you, I want to support. The L.A. Times is hugely important to Southern California. Um, it's still the largest newsroom. I, I think we're second largest, but they're still the largest newsroom. And as you know, by all the Times reporters we have and columnists who join us on the program, I hold it in very high regard. And so that for me is, in, is another thing. But at nearly $1,000 a year for home delivery, seven days a week of the LA Times, I think I'm finally done. Even saying that is hard for me to say. Let's talk with Carrie in Hollywood. Carrie, good to have you with us. You still get uh, print delivery of the newspaper? Every day, and then the New York Times on Sunday. And we read them both digitally online, but there's something about that paper, having that newspaper on our porch, like, like you said, in the driveway every morning. My husband does the L.A. Times crossword puzzle with a pencil every day. I read the horoscope and the Ask Amy column in the calendar section and read that cover to cover. And we read the newspapers online as well. But we and we've talked about the cost and we'd rather give up a cable service, I think, than give up the paper. Uh, Good for you, Carrie. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yep. No, just that we're one of two houses on our street that get the get get the newspaper. I don't see anybody else. 
I don't know how long you've lived uh, at your location in Hollywood, but, you know, I remember when when virtually everybody got the newspaper. It's just, you'd just, you know, be walking or driving down your street, and you just, if you left early enough in the morning, it's there at virtually every house. Yes, and I feel bad for the for the driver of the car that comes around, you know, the neighborhood at 4 in the morning or whatever to deliver two papers, you know? I'm like, wow, how far did he have to drive? Just to get to our two little yeah right well that's that's why it's it's going to be nearly a thousand dollars a year I guess that's what it takes for it to be profitable because they're not doing home delivery for a loss as I understand it is it is profitable and uh, all the papers I think now get delivered by the same source so the same delivery person that you've got is is bringing your New York and L A Times I believe same with SoCal News Group uh, they all. They all contract the same. Carrie, thank you so much. 866-893-5722. Paul in Boyle Heights, good to have you with us. So do you continue to get a print edition of the paper delivered to you? No, I did for many years. Um, I, I worked down in Santa Monica, and I would go to lunch, walk down to the promenade, have a bite, and then I would sort of and read through the paper and read through the the uh, the A section, then read through the California section, then browse through the rest, and then I would I'd put it down and I was finished with it, and then I'd go back to work. Um, I didn't have uh, recently, you know, with COVID and everything, I I hadn't didn't have time to take those lunches, and I let my subscription lapse. But uh, I, I really have to say that I I find that trying to consume news on on my iPad and with the scrolling. It's a very different experience from the newspaper where there's a beginning and an end to the sections, and you put it down and then you're done with it. You're never done with the scrolling. The screen is constantly refreshing with something that's happening. Somebody says somebody's going to jail, and and there's just constant, you know, there's there's no end to it. So I'd I'd like to go back to reading the newspaper, actually. I think I'm going to get my printer screen. But the problem is the newspaper now is so skinny, and there's so little content in it. Yeah. that it wouldn't last me for a lunch now. No, it wouldn't. Uh, Paul, one thing to consider, maybe you do this, but they also, most newspapers have an e-edition, so they're still curating an edition that you can look at on your tablet, on your phone, or on your laptop, which is is the same layout as the home delivered delivered newspaper. You I can, tried that, yeah. but I didn't take to it. It didn't. It, okay, it, it okay. Didn't, is the physical experience of it isn't it isn't holding the damn thing (laughs) (laughs) and it's you don't get the ink on your fingers i know even something about that paul i appreciate it very much the thing i like about the e-edition and i hope newspapers don't do away with them but you know they might that's a cost-cutting thing they can do if they're not doing a home delivered newspaper do they continue curating an e-edition or is it just a series of, of stories and frankly newspaper apps I mean, there are exceptions. The New York Times, Washington Post have terrific apps. Wall Street Journal app, I like. Some of the other newspaper apps, to me, are are not well designed. They're not updated frequently enough. And you miss a lot of stories unless you're really good at knowing where to find them, uh, which is tough. So the E-Edition helps solve some of that. Let's talk next with Brian in Ventura. Good to have you with us. Brian, I understand you still get uh, print delivery of the Wall Street Journal? 
Brian, this is Brian in Pasadena. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I was. I'm let me reintroduce you. We got we got a different Brian up. So this is Brian in Pasadena. Brian is a New York Times Sunday subscriber. Go right ahead, Brian. Sorry. For sure. I love the New York Times on Sunday. I used to be a paper boy, so I have a real affinity for the real hard copy. And what? And I love the New York Times app. You're exactly right, Larry. But what I miss in the app is discovering an article I never would have searched for. Right? I'm. I'm so I would. I'm not someone who reads the business section of the newspaper. And yet, this most recent Sunday's uh, business section of the New York Times had this incredible article that I was totally enraptured with. And I never yeah, would find yeah. myself on those kind of discoveries on the app. On the app, I have to really know what I'm going to go look for. I'm only reading headlines, and so I feel like I really miss out on that adventure that a hard copy can be. Yeah, beautifully said, Brian. That is so true that you cannot typically be interested in a section of the paper and you're leafing through it and there's just something that absolutely captivates you and you never would have been exposed to and that you would likely never click on on the app. Brian in Pasadena. Now let's talk with Brian in Ventura. Brian, thanks so much. You still get print delivery of the journal? I still get the Wall Street Journal. Um, I, their journalism is great. I love the hard copy, like your previous caller said. Um, with the LA Times, I maintained my subscription for many years, and it just became a little more than a shopper rag during COVID, and I just couldn't justify the cost anymore for the print delivery. Yeah, yeah. So do you find getting the Wall Street Journal that it still it still gives you that sense, that... that um, history that you're looking for in the experience uh, and it was easier to give up the times because you get a paper delivered? I, it is that and also as you said earlier there's so much online that I can see for local news and um, for the international and the, the local national politics. The Wall Street Journal covers that very well. Yeah. The Journal's a great paper. I I love the Journal. Brian, thank you so much. 866-893-5722. Marsha in Covina. I'm getting so many comments. Uh, Hold off on putting more in my Neo screener, please, because I I need to be able to read these without them flipping away. Uh, Florence in Topanga Canyon says, I'm a loyal subscriber of a physical paper. It's been hard with the rates, but I think it's important for maintaining community. There's something so amazing about turning the pages and chatting at the table. Florence, I am with you. Uh, Doug in Pasadena, uh, like Larry, my wife and I have the New York Times, LA Times, Wall Street Journal. We get them in print and digitally. We like the crossword puzzles and Sudokus. We support journalists. Doug, thank you for that. Andy in South Pasadena, I do Sunday only for $70 a year. I love supporting the L.A. Times, but I don't think it should cost an arm and a leg. It's good for wrapping trash, too. Andy, thanks very much. No journalist likes to think of, of their words being used for that purpose. But um, Marilyn in Arcadia, I currently get the print and online. I much prefer to read the physical copy, but I'm not willing to pay that price tag. We also travel a lot. Probably twice a month I have to call and cancel the Days, which is a hassle. Uh, let's see. Let's talk with Joanne in Los Alamitos. So good to have you with us. So, Joanne, uh, you continue to get a print edition delivered. We actually just canceled about, I'd say, six months ago. Um, I, like you, have had, I, I remember getting the Times in the morning and the Herald in the evening, and 
Um, just loved getting the paper and read all both editions. And we do get a digital um, New York Times and a Washington Post. But I kept my L.A. Times because my daughter is a journalist. And I felt a real sense of obligation to journalists yeah, to continue yeah. to get the print edition. And um, she would laugh at me that because she's a very young modern uh, journalist who is very digitally oriented. But what happened to us is that we live in an unincorporated part of, a part of Orange County, and the papers would pile up and pile up, and we had no place to recycle them. So I called the LA Times and I asked, do you have any recommendations? What can we do with these mounds of newspapers? And the gal on the phone said, oh, just get the digital edition. Wow. I was so disappointed yeah, yeah. at her response. Um so we then went to the Sunday edition only yeah. because I love the crossword puzzle. And then ultimately we just had to give up on it because we had no place to take all of our newspapers. Well, the customer service rep who said, oh, just go digital, I, I, I get the sense that's where they're going, is that they're, they're reaching the point where they don't have critical mass. I'm, I'm just guessing. I have no inside information where they're they're looking to phase it out. Now, again, I understand it's profitable, at least at the prices they're charging, but I, I have to wonder how long they're going to continue providing home delivery. Um, Joanne, thank you so much. Norman in Valley Village says, I get both the L.A. and New York Times. I like to do puzzles, which is better on paper than online. I also prefer to read it physically, especially longer stories. And Judy in Pasadena says, I still get the L.A. Times and the Pasadena Star News seven days a week. I want to echo the caller who said he continued to get the paper to model it for his kids, saying it's important to read the news. My son is a journalism major. I think seeing us read the paper has influenced that. Colleen in the City of Orange says the increase is surprising, but my family is loyal. Barry in Silver Lake uh, says I get the New York Times Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, but I subscribe online to about five papers. This conversation is actually inspiring me to get the L.A. Times print edition on Sunday because it probably needs support more than ever. Barry, thank you so much for that. And Florence in Topanga Canyon says I'm a loyal subscriber of the physical paper. It's been hard with the rates, but I think it's important for maintaining community. I think I read that previously. I'm sorry about that. Um, let me share some emailed comments. Christine in Pasadena. Uh, many years ago, I switched to an online L.A. Times to save the Earth's resources. It bothered me that all those trees were cut, that fossil fuels were used to get the paper to me. And even the recycling used energy, and a lot of the papers didn't get recycled. I do think it's much harder to scan the paper, to catch sight out of the corner of my eye of something else that's interesting. I much prefer the print version, but can't justify the ecological damage. Christine, thank you. And in Pasadena emailed, I wonder if digital subscription to the Times are more profitable than print, what's the best way to support the times? Well, I would just say, and this is simplistic, subscribe, <laughs> support our local journalism, subscribe, whatever, whatever way. Um, it's important that the Times have subscribers and readers. Erica and Rancho Mirage emailed, if you instead think of home delivery as priced $2.74 a day, does it still seem exorbitant? I noticed this week an announcement from Cal State Fullerton in the Sunday print edition was supplanted by a bank ad in the e-newspaper. Gray in Fountain Valley emailed, I decided to go all digital when it came time to renew last July. For a while, I've been 
reading the L.A. Times, O.C. Register, and New York Times online, so I thought I'd save a few trees and go all digital. Andrea in Studio City. My husband used to get and read the L.A. Times daily, and I continued after he passed away. I now only get it delivered on the weekends, as I want to support the paper but don't have time to read it daily. I don't like the idea of reading it online. I like feeling the paper. I'm old-fashioned. Thank you, Andrea. You're like a lot of us. And Will in Pacific Palisades emailed, we get the L.A. Times seven days, plus the Journal, New York Times, Financial Times, weekend editions. There's nothing like reading in-depth articles via print. Reading it online is full of distracting ads. You never finish the longer pieces. My kids flip through the paper every morning, which is a big part of their reading habits. The print editions also really illustrate what's important and relevant. The loss of the print versions across the U.S. has contributed to mis- and disinformation and the rapid rise of obtaining news from low-quality sources. I want to thank all of you. I There's so many coming in. I, I know this really struck a nerve, and I'm so glad. I appreciate you being with us and sharing your thoughts. You've given me a lot to ponder as I'm so close to canceling the home delivery of the printed L.A. Times to go digital only, but you've given me a lot to think about. We'll be back in just one minute on Air Talk. Support for LAist comes from FX is What We Do in the Shadows. Follow the nightly exploits of vampire roommates Nandor, Laszlo, Nadja, and Colin Robinson as they navigate the modern world of Staten Island with their human familiar. Starring Kayvon Novak, Matt Berry, Natasha Dimitriou, Mark Prokish, Harvey Guillen, and Kristen Shaw. Emmy eligible in all comedy categories. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com FYC. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a health resort with 84 years of wellness experience, providing summer vacations centered on mindfulness and well-being. Activities include sunrise hikes, water classes, yoga, and spa therapies, all set in a backdrop of a dreamy summer sky. A six-acre organic garden provides fresh fruits and vegetables daily. Learn more at RanchoLaPuerta.com. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Wow. We have some people who love newspapers, and I love that. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your thoughts about uh, subscribing to home delivery of a printed newspaper. We turn our attention now to new research on California's mountain lion popula- population. Of course, here in Southern California, we adopt mountain lions that are observed in the Santa Monica Mountains. We really take them to heart because they're rare sightings and we're concerned about their ability to survive in an urban environment with cars and freeways and lack of corridors for them to move in pursuit of uh, partners as well as prey. But in other parts of the state, mountain lions are far more prolific. As just a couple of years ago, I recall driving in the uh, hills of Santa Rosa and seeing a mountain lion just dead on the side of the road, nobody giving a second thought to it as though it's an everyday occurrence, as though it's a deer. Um, but um, even with that, there had been a question how many mountain lions we've got in the state. And joining us from UC Santa Cruz, professor of wildlife ecology, who helped work on a census of the mountain lion population. Chris, thank you so much. It's good to have you with us. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. So share with us what the findings were of this recent census. Do we have as many mountain lions as it was thought we had? 
Um, yeah. So, so just to be clear, we're still working on the 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 final analyses, but it it is looking like the number of mountain lions in the state is within the range of what was previously estimated. So we've got what between thirty two hundred and forty five hundred of the big cats. Yeah. So so again, we're still working on the final numbers, but it, it should be somewhere. Uh, somewhere along those lines. And the, the previous estimate, which was, you know, really just an estimate, um, was between four and 6,000. So, so not so different. All right. And what regions of the state see the largest number of mountain lions? Yeah, so, um, so mountain lion populations are going to sort of follow deer. And so, you know, where you have the most deer, you're going to have the most mountain lions. And where do we have the most deer? Well, in the sort of more productive parts of the state. So along the coasts where it rains a lot and you have lots of, uh, you know, plant productivity. So, you know, Santa Cruz Mountains, uh, the North Coast, Humboldt County, Mendocino County, where you have, you know, uh, rainforest with lots of deer. Those are the areas you're going to see the the most mountain lions. And looking at this population, are are there any concerns as to whether it's large enough to support genetic diversity, uh, or or you know, is it because they tend to be concentrated populations that there there appear to be enough of the large cats to be able to keep that? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question, and. You know, we really don't have a numbers problem right now in California, but we do have a genetics problem. And so particularly if you look at the coastal population south of the San Francisco Bay to the Mexican border, you know, you have a lot of urban development and big highways that have essentially fragmented uh, mountain lion populations into these small uh, mountain ranges where they're having an increasingly hard time moving among mountain ranges and, and breeding across those populations. And so what we're seeing is an increasing amount of inbreeding in these populations, which is um, essentially destroying the genetic diversity that we have and starting to lead to some uh, negative consequences like malformed sperm and testicles which fail to descend and and other signs associated with inbreeding. It would there be any value in relocating some of the mountain lions in these northern California coastal ranges into areas south of San Francisco to provide more diversity or would they struggle in the new environment? Uh, you know that's certainly a possibility but um you know, once you commit to that, you have to commit to that in perpetuity, and 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 that becomes very expensive. It becomes a, a sort of uh, challenge that humans will have to manage in perpetuity. Um, you know, we'd much rather see um, the the connectivity that we have among these mountain ranges, the to the extent that it exists. We'd like to see that maintained, and where it's been lost. Um, you know, it can often still be corrected through building of highway overpasses or, or underpasses. Um, and, uh, you know, those sound expensive because they have multi-million dollar price tags, but 
they're really in the long run much cheaper than doing this, um, you know, constant management uh, forever. Of course, we have um, the huge over, and, overpass here in Southern California being constructed across the 101 freeway to provide that kind of connectivity. And that's going to be just fascinating to see the degree to which different species use that overpass. Yeah, yeah, it should be um, super interesting. And, and you know, when these kinds of overpasses have been built elsewhere in the U.S. and around the world, um you know, it's not long before animals figure them out and start using them. And, and it won't just be mountain lions. It will be lots of other species um, that also need these uh, uh, bridges to connect between populations. Just in closing, uh, Chris, how, how was the census carried out? Uh, was it, you know, looking at tracks of, of mountain lions? Because, you know, they try and stay out of sight for the most part. How, how, was the, how were the numbers determined? Yeah, that's another great question. So, you know, we tend to be good at counting things we can see. And as I'm sure you and your listeners can appreciate, it's, it's very hard to see a mountain lion. And so we had to use a technique called uh, genetic mark recapture, where we use specially trained dogs uh, to find the, the, the scat or poops of, of mountain lions. And then we uh, analyze the genetics of those uh, scats to see um, how many animals we, we captured in a particular area. And then you can look at how many times you recapture the same, the scat from the same individual. And then you can use statistics with that data to sort of back out what the population should be. Professor, thank you so much for being with us and talking about this effort to determine the number of mountain lions and where concentrations of mountain lions are in California. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. UC Santa Cruz, professor of wildlife ecology. He worked on this count that's being finalized. Christopher Wilmers joining us on Air Talk. Coming up, we're going to talk about haircut fails. I want to hear from you. What is the worst haircut you've ever received? What made it so bad? What perhaps went wrong in communication with the stylist or with the barber? That's all coming up. You can make your call right now. If you have a notable haircut horror story, I want to hear from you. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Support for Elias comes from FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. Emmy eligible in all limited series categories. Television Academy members can watch all episodes at fxnetworks.com fyc. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, voted a top international destination spa by readers of Travel and Leisure magazine in 2023. Rancho La Puerta provides three, four, and seven-night summer wellness retreats for anyone who enjoys hiking, mindfulness, and fitness classes in a garden setting on 4,000 verdant acres of nature preserve. Check into summer at Rancho La Puerta, rancholapuerta.com. 
I'd also like to see your bad haircut. <laughs> if you have a photo of it, if you documented it, try and find it and uh, email it to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name, though perhaps that was the last thing you wanted to do was document the terrible haircut. Um, but if you've got it, please show it at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We're asking listeners to share haircut horror stories, the worst cut you ever got, and what went wrong. Was it a miscommunication with the stylist or barber? Was uh, was the person under the influence who was providing the cut? Was it a family member who did it uh, and and left your hair um, uh, uh, unviewable? We're at 866-893-5722. With me is uh, Amanda Staples, owner of Cactus Moon LA, a salon in Highland Park. Amanda, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Larry. I'm super honored to be here. I listen to you on my way to work. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Amanda. (laughs) Well, please share with us, how do you get on the same page with a client who comes in? What are some of the questions you ask or some of the ways that you try to avoid happening what we're talking about in this segment? I think one of the best things to focus on is... um, communication about what went wrong in your last appointment. And um, what I try to do is talk about, is there something that happened after the appointment when you were styling your own hair or was it just like that, that would be some of the, the main kind of conversation that I would have is like, what exactly went wrong? Was it, afterwards? Was it in the appointment? Was it with the communication? Um, So we really focus really a lot about our consultation so that we can get all of the history of what happened so we can try to focus on if it was products, if it was the actual communication, were you saying words to your stylist that maybe you didn't know what they meant and (laughs) stylist knew what it meant and then it just ended up kind of or vice versa. Yeah, you can have a stylist who uses a term that's commonly used in hairstyling and haircutting, and and the client doesn't know what that. Re- oh, sure, that sounds great. And then the next thing, oops. Um, well, let's take a listener call. Uh, let's talk with uh, Janine in Burbank. Janine, good to have you with us. So, what's the worst cut you ever got? Hi, could you hear? Can you hear me? Yeah, clearly? yeah, Janine, go ahead, please. Yeah. That's why we put you on. We can hear you. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Okay, so I do have a story. I was living in San Clemente, California. It's next to a Marine uh, uh, military base. And, uh, well, I had a pixie cut at the time, and I had gotten a really nice pixie cut, but uh, my friend who had given me the pixie cut had moved far away. So I just thought I'd just walk into this barber shop uh, without understanding the difference between a barber and a salon hairdresser. I guess I walked in and I asked him just to freshen up my, my pixie cut. Well, during this, uh, this haircut, I realized that this was a military 
barber shop. <laughs> and I basically said, hey, just do your thing. It's not a big deal. Just, you know, clean it up, make it a pixie cut. Um, I, I soon realized that it was, it was, that this, 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 this gentleman has done military haircuts at day in, day out. And that's what he gave you. So Janine, I got to, I got to move along. I'm so sorry. Cause I got a lot of callers, but how long did it take for the military cut to grow out? How long? Yeah, no, actually, I walked out and I realized I had a, a, a military uh, crew cut, and there was a line of Marines waiting for their cut oh, no. to happen, and it was just so embarrassing. And it took me a long time to, to outgrow that cut. So that's my story. Janine, it's a great one to start us off on a military cut. Uh, you got the uh, Camp Pendleton special there. Uh, thanks so much. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. And if you documented your terrible haircut with a photo, please share it. I'll do my best to describe it on air. Plus, just be be fun for us to see that. 866-893-5722. Carol in Mar Vista. Worst cut you had. What were the circumstances? I had a friend who was in stylist school, and she asked me if I could be her model. I said, sure. So I went to her house, and she's, she's cutting my hair, and she decides she wants to get high. So she, she smoked a joint. And then about halfway through the haircut, she said, oh, I can't do this anymore. I'm just too tired. I'm too high. Sorry. I'm done. And so like that with half my hair cut and half of it not cut. Oh, my God. Uh, is that a friend you stayed in touch with after? You know, I did because she was kind of a goofball and really fun, but I never got a haircut with her again. <laughs> Understandably. Did she go into the profession? She did. Actually, she ended up going, yeah, she did. So I guess she uh, somehow was able to cut a full head of hair at some point. And hopefully stayed sober while doing it. Carol, how long did it take for your, your or, or did you go somewhere to get it finished? I, you know, I don't remember. I probably did, but it was pretty short. So it took like months to grow out. Oh, Carol, thanks so much. Carol and Mar Vista. Let's talk with uh, Alden in Rancho Cucamonga. I understand you were the one who perpetrated the bad cut? Yeah, unfortunately, Larry, I was at Officer Candidate School. We were going to do formation the next day. People showed up late and had nowhere to go to get a haircut. So first couple of guys came in with short hair. I knew how to do that. But the word got out, a line formed, that his guy's going to be our savior. And after about the fourth haircut, guys started coming in with uh, longer hair than I knew how to cut. And I went from being the savior to the butcher. Oh, no. About that to this day. And. At every reunion, I get labeled <laughs> the butcher, but it's a great story. It is a great story, Alden. And, it's, you know, it's worth going through that to be able to tell people about it. That's so funny. Did you have any training at all? Well, no, but I'd done my, you know, I'd done college friends for a while with kind of hair that I was familiar with. So I felt pretty confident about it. And the first couple of guys that came in, they were really satisfied. Like, oh, great, man, you saved me. It looked really good. But then guys came in with textures of hair I wasn't familiar with, but they still insisted that I do it. And after about three more, they were like, oh, my God, this is worse. Let's cut it all off. 
<laughs> Alden, thanks. Oh, I love it. That's a great story. We're talking about the worst haircuts that AirTalk listeners have had, and great to have someone who actually performed it. Um, uh, best intentions uh, didn't necessarily work out the way he planned. We're at 866-893-5722. You can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location first name, and if you have a photo of the terrible haircut, please share it with us on email as well. We're joined by the owner of Cactus Moon LA, a salon in Highland Park. Amanda Staples is with us. We'll come back and continue our conversation with more listener calls in just one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Coming up next hour, the Consumer Electronics Show just getting underway in Vegas. I always look forward to this each year because we hear about what the new gadgets are, the things that are touted by the big electronics companies, as well as little ones running on venture capital, hoping to be the next big thing. And you uh, get a sense of what the trends are, as well as what the wipeouts are going to be, the ones that uh, fall into obscurity in fairly short order. We'll hear uh, about CES. That's coming up next hour right here on Air Talk. Right now, we're hearing listeners describe the worst haircuts they've ever received. It's actually an idea that came to us from one of our news apprentices who had such an experience, and uh, we're taking listener calls for you to share with us. Uh, Let me go back to Amanda Staples of Cactus Moon LA, her salon in Highland Park. Amanda, what what got you started with cutting hair? We just heard Alden's horror story about... uh, trying to help out uh, his fellow uh, members of military service and that going awry. you have any experiences like that when you were learning your profession? Um, I think I was actually pretty, like, um, talented just in the beginning, but I also really do care about my craft, so I really take the utmost care, and so that's why I really tell people to do their research, to get a referral, to have inspiration photos, um, and um, hair mishaps. I think that I've had a few, but I feel like that was definitely in the beginning. And um, yeah. so, no, not, not so much anymore. No, for sure not. No, I, I assume not now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk with uh, Carmen in Santa Ana. Carmen, so good to have you with us. What's your worst haircut experience? Well, last week um, I went to a personal friend who charges $12. I went to her house, and she cut one side shorter than the other, and she I wanted a trim, so she did a horrible haircut. I went there because my hair dresser charged seventy dollars. So I thought, well, twelve dollars can not be that bad. But yeah. she cuts it on dry hair, not even on wet hair. So when I got home I washed it and oh well, I've been wearing a baseball hat all this time until my hair grows again. <laughs> and this course, just happened to you, Carmen? Last last week, yes. Yeah, funny that oh, you no. have this, this uh <laughs> Yeah, because I'm like, he must have (laughs) known. Right, exactly. We've been following you, Carmen. Oh, no. So you got a $12 cut and and got what you paid for, it sounded like. Exactly. You get what you pay for. Yeah. (laughs) Luckily, my hair grows very fast. 
but still, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to wear in a ponytail or a baseball hat. <laughs> All right. Well, good luck. We hope it grows out quickly for you. And uh, yeah, haircuts are, are are pricey because the costs, of course, for stylists and for barbers have have gone up considerably. Let's talk with uh, Jesus in Sherman Oaks. I understand you're another perpetrator of a bad haircut, like Alden, our our previous caller. Share your experience, please. Uh, hi, Larry. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, I, my son, when he was seven years old, he was uh, acting. He was the beginning of his acting career. And he had an audition, and we didn't have any money, and his hair looked terrible. So I looked on a YouTube video, and I said, I can't do this. <laughs> and I gave him the worst haircut possible. But the audition was that day, so I grabbed a bunch of product and kind of fixed it up a little. And we went to audition, and he got it. Wow. So with with the, with the way you did his hair. So how do, what did you do to try and learn how to cut his hair? I just watched a YouTube video. All right. I, I, I looked up boys haircut on YouTube. I love it. I love it. So uh so your son was able to get the commercial. Has he gone on to continue acting? Oh yeah, he has quite a he's 13 and he has quite a career now, but we that's always the one of the scariest moments because when we got to the shoot, the hair lady looked at his hair and she said, what is this? <laughs> well, maybe it made him stand out all the more, Jesus. Uh, and then his talent really prevailed. Thanks so much. in Sherman Oaks uh, joining us on Air Talk. Annette in Huntington Beach, thanks for joining us. Share with us your hair debacle. I um, had some friends who were in beauty school. This was back in the 50s. I mean, in the 70s. And they dyed me to match my dog. What and color was your I dog? She was orange. She was a chow chow with that kind of red-orange color. Yeah. And they dyed me to match. And then they then they said, oh, no, Bird, we didn't dye you to match Mo. <laughs> but they put something on it, some kind of toner to tone it down a bit. Oh, my gosh. So how long did you have orange hair? Um, about four weeks. Oh, my gosh. Well, today, of course, no one would give that a second thought. But in the 1970s, orange hair was certainly not uh, something that you would see. Annette, thank you so much. Uh, let's talk with Omri in Beverly Hills. Omri, uh, real quickly, please, your bad haircut experience. Hey, Larry. So I, went, uh, I went a few months ago to a, a professional hair salon that my, that my roommate recommended very strongly. He said he's been to this guy dozens of times. He does great haircuts and great price. And really, his price was great. It was half of what I normally get at the normal uh, hair salon that I go to. And uh, like you said before, with the previous caller, I got, I got exactly what I paid for. <laughs> I told the guy what I wanted with my haircut, and he said, okay, sure, sure, sure. And he did something totally different. He did whatever he wanted. And for the next few weeks, I was ridiculed by my friends until oh. my hair grew back. Omri, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Kiara in Toluca Lake says, every haircut I get is a bad haircut. I have curly hair. It's challenging to find someone who can do it right. My mom used to cut my hair growing up. Kiara, thank you for sharing that. Juanita in Long Beach emailed, my usual stylist apparently got married, moved away, so I went with the available hairstylist. I had pictures, references, 
she somehow cut my hair to look like a friar from the Middle Ages, an odd bowl cut looking disaster. I was shocked, pretended to like it. I tipped her and cried once I got to the car. It took me three years to find and trust a stylist again after this experience. Juanita, I'm so sorry. I appreciate it. Um, our AirTalk apprentice, Tamar, said, I had a terrible experience where the stylist dyed my hair blonde and tried to charge me $350 for it. I left in tears. It was the week before graduation. Teresa in Trinity County emailed, Years ago, I let my neighbor's daughter perm my hair. It was a project for her beauty school. I ended up looking like an electrocuted alf. <laughs> the old television series about the alien. And uh, let's see, Susan in Pasadena emailed, When my my grandson was five months old. My son decided to trim his hair, but as it went on, it wasn't looking too good. I kept trimming to try and fix it till my grandson hardly had any hair left. My daughter-in-law wasn't too happy when she got home. My thanks to Amanda Staples, owner of Cactus Moon LA, a salon in Highland Park. It's Air Talk. Support for LAist comes from FX's The Bear. Season two of the Emmy-winning comedy follows Carmi, Sidney, Richie, and the rest of the crew as they work to transform their grimy sandwich joint into a next-level spot. It turns out the only thing harder than running a restaurant is opening a new one. Starring Jeremy Allen White, Io Idebury, and Eben Moss Backrack. Television Academy members can watch all episodes of The Bear at fxnetworks.com FYC. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a wellness resort just 45 minutes from downtown San Diego. Three, four, and seven-night retreat packages include fitness classes, hiking, live music, mindfulness, and culinary adventures featuring fruits and veggies straight off the vine. Special rates and offers are available for summer stays and first-time guests. Savor summer at Rancho La Puerta. RanchoLaPuerta.com It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Coming up later this hour, talk about falling down the internet rabbit hole. If you're someone who, like me, can be obsessive, you start looking something up, which leads to something else, which leads to something yet again. And there you are, perhaps 90 minutes later, onto the fifth topic that was somehow related by degrees of separation from the first thing you started searching. We'll talk about that and find out what caused you to fall down that rabbit hole most recently. So it's such fascinating topics that people uh, start looking at and then find that they're they're lost in research space. But we turn our attention right now to one of Vegas's biggest annual uh, conferences, the Consumer Electronics Show. The trade show allows for manufacturers to come and display their wares and for companies that might be smaller to try and get attention for a product they think is going to be the next big thing. It's a great place for us to find out what gadgets are, are out there and which ones seem to have the most potential and which others just leave you scratching your head and you know will soon be falling into obscurity. Joining us, senior editor for CNET, covering the event in Vegas, is Nick Wolney. Nick, so good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So uh, share with us, first of all, what the feeling is around uh, CES this year. Is, is there a lot of buzz? Oh, yeah. I think there's definitely an increase in buzz. I mean, just in terms of numbers, 
uh, they reported about 140,000 attendees. That's a lift from 105,000 attendees last year. Wow. Uh, and people truly from all over the world. My immediate impression is that this is truly a global event. You have exhibitors coming from truly many, many different countries. It's not abnormal to be walking down a hallway and hear a dozen different languages being spoken um, simply from getting one room to the next. Uh, and so it's definitely a palpable feeling. I also think so much of this conference relies on in-person experience, being able to actually get your hands on some of this technology. And during the pandemic, when uh, the conference was done remotely for a couple of years, uh, it honestly you know, lost a little bit of that magic, um, just that kinesthetic experience. And so now, really, it's come roaring back. Uh, people are really, really excited. Um, the the doors were practically busting uh, <laughs> prior to the 10 a.m. opening of the hallway just now because uh, after two days of media previews, today is day one of the actual live event for all attendees. So it's a lot of excitement on the floor here in Vegas. Well, hopefully no one's injured in that. It's not like those Black Friday rushes into uh, the Walmart or Target where people knock others down. Uh, so we hear a lot about artificial intelligence being at the center of CES. Is that in fact true? Is is AI the most talked about aspect of, of the devices? It's definitely one of the main themes at this year's conference. You know, we've, we've been hearing about AI buzz for well over a year now, uh, I think ChatGPT and the availability of that really helped push the idea of AI, AI technology mainstream. What we're seeing from a lot of exhibitors so far is that they've added some sort of AI application or integration into existing hardware or into an existing device. Uh, a couple of things that I personally experienced, one was uh, I did a demonstration with a software um, that is currently integrated, integrating with Microsoft Teams that allows real-time translation, real-time transcription into any language. Uh, and so that's really exciting in terms of potentially, you know, watching a keynote or some sort of other live video or even perhaps like a video conference and being able to real-time translate into any language. Uh, that technology is powered by AI. You also have a lot of AI being integrated into the consumer products themselves. Um, so I demonstrated uh, a magic mirror. That's the name of the product, a smart mirror, uh, a couple of days ago. It was a health mirror. What it did was it scanned the blood flow in your face. Uh, and in a 30-second scan, it can, give you, uh, it can give you some details about your health. It can give you an analysis. Wow. At first, I was missed because the mirror said that I look five years older than I am. Once I got over that, uh, because of that AI technology and, and uh, going through some encrypted data on the back end, it gave me some analyses of my health. And I was really surprised. You know, it, uh, I have slightly above average cholesterol. And sure enough, this mirror clocked it. It reported it, you know, almost exactly to the number that I previously had when, when wow. going to my doctor. So it's pretty impressive to see uh, what some of these technologies are able to achieve with the help of AI. We're talking with CNET's Nick Wolney, who's senior editor. He's at CES in Vegas and uh, finding out about some of the new consumer products that are being introduced. Let's talk about the home, because in, in some previous CESs, going back the last several years, you know, the smart home has been one of the big uh, focal points for it. What are some of the things that we're seeing for home use that caught your attention? I think we're really seeing the impact of everyone 
having a stay-at-home directive for between six to 18 months because of the pandemic. You know, people got much more into cooking. They got much more into decorating at home. They got much more into things like smart home lighting. Uh, and so we're really seeing innovation from that in the space. Um, and with a lot of these different different exhibitors, um, just lots of different smart tech. Think of, uh, you know, if you had any, uh, any chore around the house that requires an appliance of some kind, there is a robot on this show floor that will offer to do it for you. Uh, truly, that's one of the things I've been most impressed with. Uh, I saw a robot lawnmower. I saw a robot snowplow, uh, a robot pool cleaner. Um, some really interesting technology regarding robot vacuums and using AI to, to really take that to the next level and innovations there. Uh, and then in the kitchen, uh, it's been really interesting to see uh, just some of the different ways that uh, uh, these exhibitors are applying AI to cooking technology. Um, at one of the media previews, we saw a grill that uses AI to help you ensure you're cooking your steak or your chicken at the perfect temperature, oh, I right? Like that. So it's actually safe to eat. Um, I know my partner would be thankful uh, for me not, you know, not burning the steak and not doing it overly well done if I had a grill like that. Uh, and so it, it's really interesting to see um, just the, all of these different appliances and the idea of robotics in the lay consumer's home. Um, that's really pronounced at, at this year's event. Um, and I really think that the idea of someone having a robot or potentially multiple appliance robots in their home is a concept that's becoming pretty mainstream. One of the things I know that you saw is SPQV glass, which acts like a solar panel. So you have a window that that is also a collector of, of solar energy, and then you could use it to, say, control the shades on the window and things like that. Fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool energy technology here. My colleague, John Reed, is on the show floor as well, covering energy specifically. Uh, and it also, uh, you know, a lot of the tech here, you know, there's, there's tech like that in terms of solar and, you know, a lot of focus on clean energy for the consumer. But there's definitely, you know, I would say in addition to AI, one of the other big themes of the entire conference, just this notion of clean energy. Um, sustainability, um, thinking about things like climate change, thinking about things like energy reduction, and what are some of the ways that we can adopt clean energy in our homes, and also to do it in a way that is cost-effective. You know, some of the technology here is quite sexy, but it's also quite exorbitant. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like I love the I love the big TVs, but they're you know there's fifty thousand, seventy thousand dollars. You know, most people aren't going to put a TV like that in their home. Uh, and so what we're seeing is a lot of solutions focus regarding those clean energy initiatives, you know, stuff that people could actually put into their homes that would that would be assistive in some way. And, that you know, that is a reasonable pricing uh, and doesn't hover up into the thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars that are going to be out of reach for people. Um, so not only for consumers, but also potentially for contractors, you know, people like that. Uh, there's a lot of potential there as well. So it's really interesting to see uh, just some of the home tech that is incorporating this clean energy, solar energy, and other alternative forms of energy in order for you to live your life. Uh, one of the things, and this, you know, is not, um, you know, the fireworks aren't going to go off over this, but as a TV viewer, I appreciate it. Samsung claims that 
for some of its new OLED TVs that they have virtually eliminated glare. This is a real problem because as wonderful as the images can be on OLED TV screens, um, they're challenged with getting the same degree of brightness as other technologies, and they're prone to glare. So that's that um, that's something that uh, could make a huge practical difference for home televisions, Nick. Oh, yeah. And my colleague, David Kassmeyer, who covers TVs, he got a preview of it, and, and we caught it on video. Sure, You know, it's almost, it's almost like when you watch one of those movies, and, you know, the ghost, you know it's a ghost because they don't have a reflection in mm-hmm. the mirror. Like, it really, it was kind of freaky. <laughs> you know, he sat down right in front of this TV, and there was no reflection of him at all. And there was wow. a window in the background, and there was no reflection of the window. So I think that's, that's the kind of tech that performs really well here is stuff that clearly has, has achieved some sort of innovation in technology and in production and in manufacturing. But then we as consumers, we don't have to think that hard about it in order to enjoy they enjoy the benefits yeah. of it. Um, and so he did a terrific video that I think we have up on social media that where he did a side-by-side. You know, he was quickly running from one couch to the next, you know, to sit in front of each TV. But sure enough, you could see it side-by-side between these two OLED TVs. Uh, one of them, he's, you know, he's the ghost. At the end of Act 1, you know, no reflection at all. And then at the other TV, you know, a standard TV that's on the market. And so that's really exciting to see um, in terms of just those features and stuff that, you know, may not be available yet, but within a few years, it's very possible that that will become the norm. Yeah. That's the kind of thing you would actually expect to see in production when a major TV manufacturer makes makes that kind of advancement. Let's talk more about health and wellness. You mentioned the mirror that was able to tell you things about uh, your, your overall health. Um, there's a wearable glucose monitor that's not designed for people with diabetes, the Abbott Lingo first wireless glucose monitor, um, and that's already, I understand, in the market, uh, the U.K. There's also, for women's health, the EV Smart Ring built for women, which can um, get biomeasurements related to menopause, women's monthly cycles, pregnancy. Um, This is fascinating. Yeah, I think a lot of the themes around the wellness technology this year um, are just playing on the idea that people enjoy wearables. They enjoy wearable technology. Uh, you know, it, it's not the same as a diagnosis, right? There is some diagnostic te- technology that's being shown here, but as far as for consumers, people get that it's not a diagnosis. But I know for me personally, seeing how many uh, steps I've done in a day or how much I've moved around in a day, it's just a nice reminder. It creates awareness. Uh, you know, it allows me to make some decisions about, you know, how I'm going to spend my day, how I'm going to spend my week, things like that. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of really interesting innovation here, particularly with regard to wearable technology. Um, and, you know, what are some ways that I can track my health without having to exert myself so much? Um, I saw, you know, for someone uh, with diabetes, actually, I saw a separate uh, device that, that will microdose insulin. Uh, in real time, uh, and it's AI-assisted, and, you know, that's just one less thing, you know, yeah. so that someone with diabetes doesn't have to be pricking their finger all day long. Um, just things like that, you know, simplifying life, um, and so I think that has been also, like, a lot of the theme with, with the wellness tech, 
I also think people are more interested in personal wellness and monitoring wellness after we had, uh, you know, an event like a global pandemic. You know, we even saw those innovations uh, last year and the year before, things like your watch reporting blood oxygen levels and stuff like that that people maybe didn't care about five years ago. And now they're, they're curious or interested yeah. in. Yeah, we're seeing several different brands really lean into that, not just that technology, that tracking technology, but also something that you could just wear on your wrist or on your finger or on your ankle even, uh, saw some of those, and and be able to get that data as you go. Nick Wolney is senior editor for CNET at CES, the huge consumer electronics show in Las Vegas. Uh, speaking of number of steps you do, Nick, I can only imagine the thousands of steps you've been doing over the press preview days of this and that you'll be uh, logging today. Have you been tracking that? I have, actually, yes, and, and I am crushing it. I am delighted. <laughs> so whatever that mirror says, don't even worry about it. Okay. I, am, I am healthy and fit. I am, I am crushing 10,000 steps and then some. Um, and it's because there's 2 million square feet of space here, right? There's true. There's 12 different exhibitor halls. It's not just one hall. There's 12 different halls. It's all down the Las Vegas Strip. Um, so tons to look at wow. and see. It really is a global conference. Yeah, kind of overwhelming. Hey, before you go, a couple things I want to ask you about. First, uh, pet tech, which uh, I know there's a lot of money being invested in that. What stood out to you in devices for pets? The big thing for pet tech was that people are willing to spend <laughs> as much on their pet as they will on themselves, truly. Um, And so what we saw, we saw some interesting things specifically regarding pet health. Um, The beginnings of, you know, things like uh, pet health monitoring. Um, And then we also saw some really interesting products, you know, just in terms of the day-to-day, you know, being able to, you know, feed your pet on a schedule, um, you know, things like that. So it's interesting to see how that pet tech is just expanding further. People, they, for many people, pet, their pets are their family. Um, and so um, that vet tech, veterinary tech, that kind of thing, saw a lot of that um, on the floor as well. But, you know, that's been really delightful because you know, I'm a pet person. Yeah. Um, and so yes, so of many of us are. I, I, hanging out, yeah. uh, Nick, I saw one of the products, Pawport, which is the smart pet door. I love this idea because you can you can put a Bluetooth tag on your pet's collar. And so your pet then is able to open the door because it senses that Bluetooth connection. But unwanted animals can't come in the dog door from outside. I, what a great idea. Have to see if that's really uh, mass produced because um, that's something I think many of us could use. Yeah, and I think that's the tech that really performs the best here is stuff that's really practical, you know? Um, so that, I mean, that smart pet door, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you don't want raccoons. No, no. On your house, you know? And so that's, so it gets the job done. I saw another, I saw a smart watch that lets you turn your uh, watch into a remote, a remote control. And so you could browse Netflix just with a tap of your fingers, you know? It's, it's stuff like that where it's just, it's small innovations on um, real problems. You know, there is, I will say, there's some tech here that is providing to a solution to something that was not a problem, right? We, we do <laughs> soften the case. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but then on the flip side, then you see stuff like that where it's like, oh, I didn't even think about, you know, and I really get how that works. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's a great innovation and that solves like a real problem for homeowners. So, so Nick, it's really cool to see. Uh, Nick, we have uh, Michael Mann, the the film director and writer, standing by his new movie is Ferrari. So it's appropriate for us to end with you on car stuff. Um, anything on EVs or anything car related that really, really made it for you? 
When I was walking through one of the uh, previews yesterday, you know, I saw a I saw a Hyundai model that demonstrated um, that all the wheels could turn 360 degrees. Uh, and so something that demonstrated is that it parallel parked by just turning all the wheels sideways and then just sliding <laughs> right into the spot. So for me as a terrible parallel parker, I'm like, okay, when does this go on sale? Uh, and so that was interesting. You know, there's certainly a lot of cool EV technology. There's a lot of AI incorporated into the EV tech as well. Things like monitoring the driver. Um, in about three minutes, I'm actually, I'm actually doing a demo with an AI that can detect if you've left a child in a car, in the car seat, you know, things like that. So there's not only the performance of the vehicle itself. I'm noticing there's a lot of vendors here this year uh, creating technologies for within the car, inside the car, monitoring the health of the driver, monitoring what's going on inside the vehicle. Uh, and so that's been really interesting to see as well. Nick, thank you so much. I know you're busy as heck and really appreciate you taking this time to share with us the things that most caught your attention at CES. Uh, go have some fun and uh, put those thousands of miles uh, on your feet. Thank you, or thousands of steps, I should say, on your feet. It's Probably, miles I bet it does by the end of the day. <laughs> hey, thanks so much. Appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate it. Nick Wolney is senior editor for CNET at the massive CES. CES event in Las Vegas. Coming up, Michael Mann. His new film is Ferrari. We'll be back in just a minute. Hi, it's Larry Mantle on LAist 89.3, joined by renowned director Michael Mann. His notable films include Thief, Manhunter, The Last of the Mohicans, Heat, The Insider, Ali, Miami Vice, Collateral, Public Enemies, and now Ferrari. Set in the summer of 1957, Enzo Ferrari's company's in crisis. The ex-racer turned car maker must see his team win a treacherous thousand-mile race across Italy to keep Ferrari viable. Adam Driver and Penelope Cruz co-star. We hear them in this clip arguing over an upcoming deal with Henry Ford. You should assign me control of your stock in the company and the freehold uh, so I can deal. Oh, because Henry Ford won't deal with a woman. No. Because if it comes to a deal, it'll be hard and fast. I have to have all the cards in my hand. Well, half the cards are in my hand. Laura, what do you want me to say? Mr. Ford, we have a deal, but first I must wait until I ask my wife for permission? Yes, you can say that. You know what? I'm going to give you power of attorney over my stock so you can deal for half a million dollars. I don't have half a million. You will if you make a deal. Penelope Cruz, Adam Driver in Ferrari. Michael Mann, thank you for joining us today on our program. Uh, thank you very much. What attracted you to this story? Because I know your history with uh, the book on which it's based goes back quite a few years. I, I tell you, the thing that kept attracting me to it and that kept me engaged in the story was the, uh, you know, the, the purely the drama, the operatic, nature of the uh of this of the of this volatile relationship and the tumultuous uh life that Enzo and Lara and and Lena were living in 1957 and it's um and it's kind of a dramatic opportunism if you like because 
historically it's accurate in these three months uh everything that priori had been this 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 iconic innovator uh basically a race ex race car driver and everything he was going to become all came into collision with the uh with a very uh, tempestuous uh marriage with uh, a woman who was powerful and strong kind of a maria callis figure if you like and uh and a, and a very different second family he had with lena lardy who, if you, who in my mind always was similar to ingrid bergman um with an illegitimate son piero who in kind of this kind of an italian convention of the period of the second family the illegitimate second family vittoria de Sica, it comes to mind um and all these plus their own son laura and enzo's son dino had died a year and a half earlier after a long disease muscular dystrophy so they were in mourning they were in grief and um the marriage was falling apart the company's falling apart it's uh uh on the edge of bankruptcy and all of these elements come together in this one uh in in the period of the of the, of the film and that's what kept my kept me hooked in it with my original uh my friend fellow directors uh the late Sidney Pollock and I both fell in love with this thing and we developed it together for a number of years and I kept going back to it for that reason it's it seems harder Michael Mann to do a, a sort of big budget independent film like this now than it would have been uh even at the time that you and Sidney Pollock were developing this and and share you know how how were you able to get the film made because um, I mean, you can you can see the money on the screen. There were huge challenges in in recreating Italy of this era, in doing the road racing sequences. Um, how how did you get this done? Well, it's actually easier now because the uh, because of the advent of streaming uh, and the ability to kind of balkanize the the, the financing uh, in this, this sense. There's an Italian, a wonderful Italian tax credit. That's very large. In our case, it's about 24 million. And so we were able to put together these different components uh, that to, to make it. The film is the film is expensive. Uh, I could have made it any time in the past couple of decades if I wanted to reduce it and make it for 35 or 40 million. But I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to make the film the right way or not make it at all. Just replicating the race cars, which you had to do. Is a five or six million dollar item. So there's, uh, you know, there's ex there's hard costs involved in making the picture. Having said that, by the way, I have two producers who work for absolutely zero fees: P.J. Von Sandwick and John Lesher. Uh, I cut uh, radically. So did Adam Driver to make the film. So that's how the film, you know, gets made. It's very much the case that the film was made by the people who are working on the film. Let's talk about Adam Driver and your decision to cast him. So he he has to be aged up, as does to some extent Penelope Cruz as well. Uh, what led you to to ultimately choose these two actors to carry the movie? That's the mystery of casting, and that's right at the heart of artistic decisions you make and creative decisions you make as a director. And it's some of it becomes uh, falls into the category of you know when you know when you're you know. The question I ask myself is, here's the character. 
Uh, and I, I don't really have the character. I've written the character and know the character. Now, if this character is inhabited by this actor, that then yields a different quotient. That then yields the final impact that this character could potentially have an audience. So from, from skill, intuition, uh, kind of an artistic projection, you you know, there there's a, there's a kind of a quantum sense of here's who it will be if it's Adam Driver. And after 20 minutes of meeting Adam Driver, I knew that he had a certain ferocity inside of him that in his heart, this is, this is Enzo Ferrari. With Penelope, it's very much the same thing. Penelope is strong. She's opinionated. She's wonderful. I love to hear, you know, she's a strong-willed woman. And, and that certainty and self-confidence that she has is right down the... Um, you know, I felt the same way about her as I did about Adam, and and I couldn't have uh, made better choices. We're talking with Michael Mann, the director of the film Ferrari in theaters now. Uh, let's talk about the technical challenges of, of the racing. One of the things that's so impressive to me when you're doing what's the signature race at the end of the film is how the camera is able in front of the race cars to move in and out the way that it is. Can you describe a bit about the framework on which the camera sits and the ways that you were able to, to move the camera around to film those scenes? We yeah we designed our own systems and I, I it, it begins with it begins with what you first started talking about which is how do I ask myself the question how do I want this racing to impact upon you how do I what do I want your experience of the racing to be dramatically and there's a a, 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 a fundamental decision that that gets made which goes like this. Um, I could shoot race cars with long lenses, and it's quite beautiful and elegant. And but that, to me, distances audiences, audiences, and makes them into uh, observers. And I didn't want them to be observer. I didn't want you to be observing it. I wanted you to be experientially empathetic to almost within it, as if you're inside the car yourself, or you're hurtling with this massive agitation down these bad roads at 150, 160 miles an hour. That's what I wanted you to experience. So that then becomes the objective. And when that becomes the mission objective, you know, that will then work itself into what am I, what, what will I be seeing and feeling? And then what do I have to have the cameras be to in order to be able to affect that and pull that off? And that then leads you into, lead, lead, led me into the technology I had to develop to be able to get the cameras into those positions on these particular vehicles, all of which we built. And then we replicated these race cars, all except for the single-seater Maserati that Jean Bayrard drives in the, in the church sequence. That car is owned by Nick Mason, the Pink Floyd drummer. That one's authentic. All the other cars that, are, that, that we race aggressively, those are all our perfect, by the way, they're mathematically perfect replicas uh, done with 3D LiDAR scanning. But beneath the hand-beaten aluminum skin of those cars sits a custom-built, we built them, tubular chassis and a contemporary drivetrain. And those cars, because the cars had to be reliable, they had to be very fast, they could go 140, 150 miles an hour, and they had to be very safe. Michael Mann, the director of Ferrari, joining us to talk about the film. Uh, you, 
have done films of all different sorts of styles and different tones as well. And one of the things that you're known for is the sense of style that you bring to your work. We think of the television series Miami Vice with its own palette, its own its own look on television. Um, we think about your films and and the vi- collateral, incredible, you know, night scene in Los Angeles that you create. And I wonder is it, as you think about your career and and at this later stage in career, all the work that you've done. The degree to which style and and the lasting effect of those stylistic choices is important to you. Well, no, that's part of part of the I mean, listen, that's part of the excitement of it, and it, it's I wouldn't call it style, I call it the film form, and the the form of the film, uh, you know, I want the form of the film to deliver an experience of the story and the world that the story is taking you is taking you into. And it is exciting, you know, to me to be doing a different thing every time. I, I you know, the idea of of replicating what I did or repeating what I may have done last isn't anywhere near as exciting as, you know, I don't know. How do you how do you port, how how do you make audiences really feel they're in 1757 in the northeastern woodlands? What are people wearing, you know? And even more importantly to that. What are the, how are they? Uh, what are their attitudes? How are they thinking? What's period authentic psychology? What's courtship? How do you say to a girl, "I like you," if you're coming from Iroquois culture and she's coming from having lived in, say, Grosvenor or Portman Square uh, in, in in 1755? Okay, but the form it takes uh, is wonderful to explore. It's a great adventure. I, I wouldn't. I can't imagine wanting to do it any other way. Or why wouldn't anybody want to do it any other way? And then so too to make the world of L.A. at night come alive the way it is for those of us who live in Los Angeles. And we know at a certain time of year that marine layer comes in, the cloud layer at about 1,200 feet. All the street lights reflect off the bottom of the clouds, and it becomes like very, very late afternoon in northern England. You actually can see. And you can't do that on photochemicals. So consequently, we did a lot of experimentation in R&D and were able to develop systems of shooting it in high def video. And that's where, so Collateral is the first uh, kind of high def video photo reel uh, film. And it was, uh, it's exciting to be out on the frontier like that with with some of this stuff. You know, or, or how are we going to evoke Miami in an exciting way. And and the first thing one does is I went down to Miami. Well, Miami, when I went down there in 1984, it was, you know, it was uniformly beige. It was tan, <laughs> the whole place. It was like really, you know, it's where your grandparents are living, right? Yeah. You know, and I started looking back at these streamlined deco buildings and realized the colors they were originally painted were, were, were in pastels, uh, very tropical. And uh, so we returned South, South Beach to its original pastel palette and uh, to, to more strongly and powerfully evoke the sense of the place so that it's more real to you, more believable. And when people are believing the world you're creating, then the story and believability of our, uh, in, increases. And that's, the, that's, that's where the form, you know, the film form comes from. And it's, ex- yeah, it's exciting to be, 
doing something that you haven't done before that's novel that uh, especially if if no one's done it before that makes it even more exciting and and it's such you know in that individual production such a signature look before we close i wanted to ask you about the complexity of of the relationship of your two lead characters but let's listen to this scene laura ferrari is blaming enzo for the loss of their son dino a year earlier you were supposed to save him you blame me for his death? Yes! Yes, because you promised me he wouldn't die! Everything. I did everything. Tables showing what calories he could eat. What went in, what came out. I grafted the degrees of albuminuria, the degrees of azotemia. Diuresis. I know more about nephritis and dystrophy than cars. Yes, I blame you, I blame you. Because you let him die. The father deluded himself! Very dramatic scene in a dramatic film. Michael Mann, what did you say to your actors when you commenced production to help them understand the dynamics of this marriage? Uh, that would take a lot longer than we have any time for. <laughs> what's certain. the first, what's oh, the wait, first it, thing it, you said it, to characterize it, it was, this marriage? It was months, and I would listen, if you listen very carefully, every, every sound that's coming out of Adam Driver's mouth is perfect. The way he emphasize some of the words that are ending in vowels, the way he says the word out. I mean, so it's the language, the movement, the breathing, but all of that gets integrated and has to become organic and reflexive. You can't be thinking about those things when you have these powerful emotions going on. And so he's condemning himself. We also, what's interesting about that scene is we didn't know that he did all of those things. We know he's in a state of grief because very early in the film, he goes to the mausoleum and talks to his dead son as if the son's alive, almost as if they're having a casual conversation. And he does this every single morning. And we know that, so we know it's a state of grief, but we didn't know what the struggle was in all the years leading up to this state of, 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 of mind that he has about, uh, about Dino, who had died a year earlier. And, and she has a completely different perspective on it. And uh, hers is very primitive almost tribal in the sense that she condemns him uh, because he was distracted because he had another family. And uh, that's why all of his attention didn't go to him. So he accuses him of, you know, so it's a very powerful, powerful uh, scene between the two of them. And I remember shooting, and when I was shooting it, I remember seeing in the monitor these very performances and you get this, as a director, this tremendous blast when you know it's, they, they've, they've totally landed you know, the scene. They just killed the scene. I want to thank you, Michael Mann, for joining us to talk about the film Ferrari as well as your career. We appreciate it very much. Thanks so much. You're listening to Air Talk on LAS 89.3. We'll be back in just a minute. Support for LAist comes from FX's Shogun. Set in Japan in the year 1600, Lord Yoshi Toronaga is fighting for his life as his enemies unite against him when a mysterious European ship is found marooned in a nearby fishing village. Its English pilot, John Blackthorne, comes bearing secrets that could tip the balance of power. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada, Cosmo Jarvis, and Anna Sawai, Shogun is available for your Emmy consideration at fxnetworks.com fyc. Support comes from Rancho La Puerta, a wellness resort just 45 minutes from downtown San Diego. Three, four, and seven-night retreat packages include fitness classes, hiking, live music, mindfulness, and culinary adventures featuring fruits and veggies straight off the vine. Special rates and offers are available for summer stays and first-time guests. 
Savor summer at Rancho La Puerta. RanchoLaPuerta.com I'm going to do something I almost never do on Air Talk, and that is completely change what we were going to talk about at the very last minute. This because of breaking news. We were going to open up the phones to hear listeners talk about falling down the Internet rabbit hole, researching one thing and ending up on a whole string of other things that might only be tangentially, uh, tenden- tangentially related. But we just got breaking news that that uh, crippling fuel leak that forced a U.S. company yesterday or earlier today to give up on landing a spacecraft on the moon uh, has now led NASA to say it's going to delay its efforts to uh, return uh, a human to the moon to 2026. NASA has postponed the landing of astronauts on the moon until at least 2026 as a result of the problems with the current um, unmanned mission that's uh, going on right now, which has had this problem with its propellant. So I want to ask you, actually, whether you think it is important to return humans to the moon. Is this something that you think should be a NASA priority? It's an important step in getting humans on potentially to Mars. How important is this? Is it in our nature as a species to be explorers and to look at what the moon would provide in the way of a potential habitable place for people to um, uh, to be able to launch to further exploration of our solar system? Or do you think that's a misplaced priority? I'd like to hear from you. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. This gives us an opportunity to talk again about where we see the role of humans if we do in space exploration and what we think is the comparative importance. You know, so much of the work that we have done, with the exception of the International Space Station, has been robotic missions that we've had to the moon, that we've had to better understand asteroids, the robotic missions which have returned so much tremendous science to us. But what is the role of actually putting humans back into space and landing humans on the moon once more? We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email your thoughts to us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and your first name, a chance to hear from you. Now, if you hadn't heard about what's going on with this current mission, so Astrobiotic Technology, uh, a private company for which NASA has provided a funding toward this current mission. So the spacecraft encountered problems keeping its solar panel pointed toward the sun so that it would have solar power to operate. But then it also is losing its propellant, which gave it no chance of a soft landing on the moon. That's what the company Astrobiotic said in a statement that was released this morning. Astrobiotic had been targeting a lunar landing on 
February 23rd, that was following a roundabout fuel-efficient flight to the moon. This would have been the first U.S. moon landing in more than 50 years and the first conducted by a private company. The second lander from the Houston company is due to launch next month. The company said the new goal is to keep the lander operating as long as possible in space in order to learn as much as it can for the next mission a year or so from now. Flight controllers managed to keep the spacecraft pointed toward the sun and its battery fully charged with another 40 hours of operation anticipated. The company hasn't elaborated on why the Peregrine lander's propellant system failed just hours into the flight. NASA paid $108 million to fly its experiments to the moon on this mission, which is part of the agency's commercial lunar program. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or email us at atcomments at las.com. Patricia in Hancock Park. Very good to have you with us. What do you think? Hi, Larry. Yes. Um, I remember in the 60s, I was a little kid the first time we landed a man on the moon, man on the moon. And we should continue to do that uh, for two reasons. One, it brought the nations together. And that's something we really need right now. And it also the science is invaluable. I think it's critical that we continue that program. All right, Patricia. Thanks very much. And, you know, the science that can be done by non-human missions is tremendous, of course. I mean, and so much of it at JPL right here in Southern California. But I think there is something about seeing our fellow humans conduct this kind of research, humans actually doing it, which does carry... um, significant symbolism as well as the science that that humans can do. Let's talk with Lucas in Santa Monica. Lucas, what do you think? Is this a priority? Should we get humans back to the moon with the idea of them going farther into space? Yes, I think we should because I think that we're going to need the practice in um, surviving in, you know, the hostile conditions of space. And the moon is a great place to practice all those skills that we're going to need as we become a space-faring species, which we'll need to be if we want to, you know, survive in the long term. Yeah, yeah. Now, Lucas, um, the cost, of course, is astronomical to do this. The cost for the Apollo missions, those projects were astronomical, but it was a national priority. Where do you think this fits uh, getting humans back in, into space beyond the International Space Station. Where does that fit in your mind as a priority? For me, it is, um, you know, it's a priority. I understand that, you know, there's a lot of things that are priorities for different people, but I think that the actual budget, when compared, I'd be curious to hear if you can tell us what the, what the percentage of the national budget is that's going to this um, important work, you know, so it's a, it's, a, it's a priority for me, but I think it's a small percentage of the whole budget. All right. Thank you, Lucas. 866-893-5722. You can also email your opinion to atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. In case you just joined us, NASA has just announced that it is delaying its plan to return humans to the moon, where they've not visited in in 50 years, um, up until 2026 at the earliest. 
Uh, and uh, that is uh, as a result of the problems that they're having with uh, this current current project. So again, um, it's going to be 2026 before uh, the next human landing on the moon. And before flying to the moon, astronauts are going to have to wait until next year um, because of, of the setback. NASA also announcing that. 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name in letting us know your thoughts about this. Uh, we're going to take a brief break. We'll come back in just one minute with more listener calls here on Air Talk. Tomorrow, our first hour of Air Talk is a simulcast with our fellow NPR member station, KNPR, in Las Vegas. I'll be on with the host of State of Nevada, which is their local program that comes on right after Morning Edition. And we'll hear from listeners in both Southern Nevada and Southern California who've moved between the two regions. What they like about one, don't like about the other. On balance, whether they're glad they made the move from one location to the other or not. That's tomorrow, 9 o'clock. Uh, when our first hour of Air Talk, which will be a simulcast between uh, Las Vegas and Southern California. Gregory in Santa Clarita, I understand you're retired from NASA. Thanks so much for joining us. Please share your thoughts about uh, humans going back to the moon. Oh, yeah. I, I've always felt that, you know, with, with the, the task, the job that NASA has, you know, being funded by the, the public, that um, it's it's always that much more personal for uh, for people to see that uh, with human beings uh, out there doing the exploration, whether it's in flight test, uh, that I had the experience working at the Armstrong Flight Research Center out at Edwards Air Force Base, uh, people exploring and discovering, uh, you know, in the controls of um, whatever the, the experiment uh, has been, developed to discover um, it's, it's the human element that that really makes the, the taxpayers more uh, invested in, in the excitement of the discoveries. Mm-hmm. We can we can save you know we can protect human beings and do robotic discovery. It's it's wonderful what JPL does in terms of the continued robotic exploration of the universe. But um, that the people involved that can physically touch and and validate, and, and we can feel that that like an extension of ourselves, witnessing what these uh, exploration professionals can do. It's uh, it's wonderful that um, in retirement now, I'm teaching at the local community college of Santa Clarita. Yeah. But the College of Canyons has student programs that we get the students involved in building these projects that NASA provides uh, to uh, give them the opportunity to get their hands dirty to build something that's going to fly up to the edge of space and do some measurements and feel their investment in yeah. continuing this, this discovery uh, process. Gregory, I appreciate it very much. Thank you for being with us. John in South Pasadena, what do you think about humans going back to the moon? I, it's, uh, it's a good idea. I'm, I'm all in favor of it. Uh, I'm in favor of science, of, uh, space exploration in general, 
And I look at it as we're collectively reaching beyond our grasp. And only when you do that do you actually grow. Um, I'm looking at the value of, of the scientific knowledge that we attain as opposed to the cost of it, the dollar cost. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a, um, a, a good reason to, uh, to continue this program. John, I appreciate it very much. I think the point you raise is a good one. You know, we, we as human beings, we appreciate information, but we also, we love stories. We connect with stories. And so when we learn about astronauts, when we hear about what their life experiences are that bring them to the place where they are our proxies to undertake this kind of exploration, I, I think that's big for us. It, it gives a level of meaning to it that goes beyond what happens with robotic science as, as just objectively as important as that work is and the volume of information that robotic missions can return to us. It's, it's phenomenal. But there is something of value that I think really speaks to us as humans to see our fellows go to the moon, potentially go on to Mars. Patrick and Lake Elsinore says, I think we need to go to Mars more than the moon. I'm terrified with plans for mining the moon for resources. Patrick, I think to get to Mars, the, the, uh, the point that has to be reached is humans able to spend considerable time on the moon first in preparation for that longer journey. Thank you so much for being with us for another edition of Air Talk. Looking forward to having you join us tomorrow at 9, right after Morning Edition. One event can change a family for generations. I'm Emily Kwong, host of a new podcast from LA Studios called Inheriting. It's about Asian American and Pacific Islander families and their histories. Join me for an immersive storytelling event at the Crawford in Pasadena. It's June 27th. Get your tickets now at las.com slash events.